Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. It's interesting having worked with people over so many years because I think there's some common things or threads that start to emerge. And one of those things is really just what it means to be human. And I would contend that there's these fundamentals uh, that all people struggle with. And that part of when they come in to see me, that where they're at is that they don't know how to reconcile some of these things. Either they've learned sort of maladaptive coping skills or strategies, or they just sort of are trying to not have things be true that are in fact true. And so one of those I would say would be fundamentally we're designed to feel. And it's ironic because people actually have feelings about feelings. <laughs> I, I agree with that. <laughs> right? I think about it with like crying and going, I don't want to cry anymore because that's a indicator of weakness. And if we're sitting with a friend, we'll be like, no, no, that's not weakness. But if you're sitting in front of your boss, you're like, yeah, that's weakness. Right? Right. But for what, whatever reason, there's feelings about the feelings. But the bottom line is nobody gets to actually opt out of feeling. And so with that, we're also all designed to be in relationship. We are fundamentally hardwired to have social groups and, and this sense of a, attachment. And because I'm sort of a, a geek when it comes to research, what researchers have found is that attachment, which that's what we label how we relate and connect with others, attachment is 100% learned which means our genetics don't actually contribute to how we learn to stay in proximity with other people. And with that, that we all develop ways to manage the threat of the loss of a relationship. But nobody gets to opt out of going, I need to be in relationship with others. I mean, think about it within the context of the prison system. Like, why is it that the punishment for prisoners when they don't fall in line is isolation. Mm, Yeah, that's true. Right? That wouldn't be significant if in some way that doesn't actually harm our brain. It's almost like we need to have that echo from another human being to let us know that we... Yeah. we're, We're there or we're alive or just some sort of feedback loop. I'm not really sure how to describe that. Well, it really is this sense of being with, right? Like I can't fight battles on my friend's behalves or on my kid's behalves, right? But the simple fact that I know of what's going on makes a difference because yeah. I would contend it's sort of like I help them hold that weight emotionally. 
And so that actually leads me into the third thing. And the third thing that I would say in regards to the fundamentals of being human is that we all struggle. Oh, yes. (laughs) Right? Big time. And that, you know, we don't always get to pick the way in which we struggle, but we all struggle. And so some of it, I would say, we actually participate in the choosing of that in going, you know, if it's how I spend my money or if I'm abusing this thing or that, that there's a way in which I participate in it. But some things we don't. I mean, I wouldn't say that we participate in the struggle of grief sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, bad things happen to good people all the time. And it doesn't mean that somebody did something or you did something per se to to cause that grief. But struggle. I see that in humans... And I don't really see that anywhere else. So I don't I don't look at my fish tank and see my fish struggling. I don't look at my dog or my cat or the squirrel outside or whatever struggling. It seems very akin to, to being human, right? Like I didn't really consider how much people struggle, but you struggle in many different ways. Not only do you struggle with, you know, physically, but but emotionally and mentally with like learning new things or with dealing with relationships or being in a relationship or like you had mentioned before, the grief of losing somebody, like being broken up with or losing a loved one. Yeah, and I think about it in terms of, well, other hum- other life, animals and sorts would, I could quote, struggle to stay alive. That's much more based on survival and not like struggle in the same way. So struggle, an example I think of is like my brother and I. So I'm a twin and when we were in elementary school, he was diagnosed with both ADHD and a learning disability. And so he, I mean, school, he just struggled all the time. Everything was harder for him. So whereas I can't read enough and love to read, and like that's my idea of vacation is just reading more by myself, (laughs) that that would never be what he would select because it's just hard for him. His brain doesn't work in that same way. And so now he has other obstacles all throughout his life as a result of that learning disability. So for somebody else, you know, the struggle could be totally different. It might be that in their family history, you know, it's a substance abuse problem or, you know, goodness, who knows, loss, right? That you've just lost a lot of people and struggling with how to navigate that or, it might be health, their mm. health, your individual health, or someone you love. I mean, I think, honestly, trying to navigate one's health overall is a significant struggle. It's, it's also like you're trying to comprehend life, right? Like when the struggle really is a, is a comprehension problem. You know, it's um, you're trying to make sense of what you think is happening, what your truth kind of is in a sense, you know, what's what's true to you, what's really happening. And the struggle is that comprehension process. But I also think of it like since, you know, as we approach these different topics of being designed to feel, designed to connect, or the fact that we all struggle, it's, it's almost like we're enabling those that would listen to the show the ability to know truths about being human and then therefore being able to enable or offer empathy to others because of these truths. Right. And I think that's really a significant lie when we do struggle that we're like, oh my word, nobody's ever struggled like this. Like right. I'm I'm all alone in this and now I can't 
find a way out. And that actually isn't going to help us do that struggle any better. And that's why even looking at these things and going, you know, I do feel the way that I do. And I have these emotions around this situation or experience. But I also, who's my, where are my people? Who do I walk alongside me in life uh, in order to navigate the struggle? And fundamentally, we're all going to struggle more when we don't know. And so this is why being able to name things really makes a difference. I mean, in the, in the field of neuroscience, we sort of say, name it to tame it. And what I mean by that is when we're able to put words to our experiences, it changes the way in which we navigate it. This might be a weird example, but I always think of The Little Mermaid. And if you haven't seen it, <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> I'll remind you. There's a, a scene in it when Ariel, as a mermaid, is eating or goes to eat with humans. And she picks up the fork and she's like, oh, look, it's a dingle hopper. Right. And then she proceeds to use it to brush her hair, <laughs> which we all know a fork is one not designed to brush our hair, nor is it named a dingle hopper. Right. It's a fork and it's an utensil we use in order to feed ourselves. And so obviously she's going to struggle <laughs> in a certain way if she continues to think that that's what it's used for. Right. Right. And so in our lives, if we can say, for example, with emotions, look, crying in and of itself doesn't mean that I'm weak. I, I cannot like it. But emotions, like it's a reflection of sadness. So I'm sad. <laughs> and I can take it further and go, I'm sad because, you know, I lost a loved one. Or I'm sad because, you know, things aren't going my way. Or I'm frustrated and I continue to try to make progress towards this goal, and I just keep hitting an obstacle. Those things help us be able to navigate it differently because then I can take the next step and go who or what can help me take the next step or move in some way to then change how I feel. Well, since you said feel, let's, let's go deeper into that. So, I mean, of course we're human and it makes sense. Yeah, we're designed to feel, but how in the world are we designed to feel? Like why are we designed to feel? What, what is it about us that makes us unique in the fact that we are designed to feel? Well, it's helpful in this regard to sort of understand the way in which the brain is designed, and I should say the human brain. And so when we talk about humans, there's three key structures that we talk about in regards to our brain, and that involves our brainstem, the limbic system, and then the neocortex, okay? And so our brainstem is really only responsible for essential functions like breathing and heart rate. And in a, a parallel to this is if you think sort of the brainstem as like the reptile or reptilian brain. Okay. So think lizard or turtle. They're, they're really just, they're, they can't self-reflect. They're really just going about their life with trying not to die. Right. And right. feed themselves and not die. Eat and not die. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. their life. Correct. But we have that part of the brain is the brainstem. And then above that, well, let me give you a little visual to help you as we walk through this. Yes. So if you, you put your hand up like you're being sworn in, so hold your right hand up beside you and then fold your thumb across your, the palm of your hand and then take your top four fingers and fold them over the top of your thumb. So in this analogy, your wrist would be synonymous with your brainstem 
And then your thumb would be synonymous with what we call the limbic system or the mammalian brain, which is associated with mammals. And then the four fingers on the front is part of our neocortex. So, but more specifically, the frontal lobe or prefrontal cortex. So it's one portion of the neocortex. Okay. And so that is what makes us human. It was sort of joke and say, put your lid on, which Mm -hmm. is like, how can I manage my emotions? I put my human brain on. When we look at um, emotions more specifically, the seat or the emotional center of the brain is actually in that mammalian brain. So your thumb, all right? It involves two key brain structures, and that involves your hippocampus, which is responsible for memory, as well as the amygdala. And that amygdala is what is the key part of the brain responsible for emotions. Now, bear in mind, and please, as we talk through this, the brain is always more complex than specifically saying, oh, this part of the brain only does X, Y, and Z. Right. That's what we know for now, and research always adds to or modifies that. So there are ways in which the frontal lobe, we always say sort of the right prefrontal cortex, also involves emotion as well. But the primary emotional center in the brain is that amygdala. Gotcha. And so this is why when I say name it to tame it, it is so critical because language is, you know, while animals can converse, right, they all have a language, so to speak, but it's not human language like words. And so when I put on my prefrontal cortex or I put on my neocortex, that I can use words to help me manage the emotions. So I'm living much more like a symphony of all of those different brain structures working collaboratively, not in opposition. I guess that's true why certain brain injuries might happen. You, know, you wreck your bicycle or something like that. I, I did that when I was four years old. I got a concussion. Really? I never had any brain, you know, I never had any memory loss. I actually did for a couple of days, I think, because, you know, I woke up in the ER and I was like, what's going on? But, you know, the symphony aspect of what you're saying there is that if one system isn't working properly, are you saying that because of that, you know, if you have a symphony, you obviously have the woodwinds, you've got the, you know, various instruments that totally make up this, you know, gigantic symphony. Sure. If one aspect of that sort of like becomes injured in in some sort of way, then it doesn't sound the same anymore. Is that the same what you're seeing here for our brains? Sure, but this is what is the coolest thing about our brain is that it's capable of being modified. So we always say neurons that fire together wire together, okay? And so a thought at the most fundamental level is a neuron. And that's just another word for sort of the cell in the brain. And so once information or once we take in data and it gets to a certain threshold in the brain, that neuron fires along and then connects with other neural neurons to create a neural network, okay? And so if there's an injury, what can happen is that neural network gets modified. And so, oh, it's like you hit a wall and now mm. that information won't, won't travel that same way. So you can actually build new neural networks, but like anything else, it takes time to develop that new route or pathway in the brain. Yeah, is that why maybe some memories get lost completely because... They become, uh, you know, say, orphaned from ever being reconnected? Well, memories are an interesting thing because, you know, ironically, 
whenever we retrieve a memory, we actually are then changing that memory because it's now, yeah, because we're recalling it and it's not happening live, right? It happened in the past, but I'm recalling it in the current moment and now it has a different feel or I got new information and then it might get banked. New associations. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's wild to think about how we can, that's, that's part of, you know, believing your your own personal truth like your memory and how my version of a story and your version of a story even if we were both perfectly fine eyewitnesses you know coherent able whatever that your version of it and my version may be very similar but not the same right it's actually interesting because the research they've done with eyewitness testimony is that it is actually pretty unreliable is that right it is because of the way in which people see things, which is exactly what you're talking about. And right. that, you know, you can even see this just through the vantage point of, of either siblings, right? I mean, you're raised in the same home. You could have, you sat at the same dinner table, <laughs> but what you remember what occurred and what your brother or sister remembers is not the same thing. Well, you're not, you're not the same people. You don't have the same exact background and Two, you you might have chosen to focus on one aspect of that interaction or experience than another. And back to the feelings, the way you would remember it would be based upon how it made you feel. Yeah. And so this is the coolest thing, I think, about that limbic system, part of our brain with our feelings. The one thing that we know is that the, the bigger the emotion, no matter whether it's positive or negative we are more apt to remember that because it works more like a vacuum seal. So I have an experience. I have a lot of emotion surrounding it. My brain's like, oh yeah, bank that. Hold on to that, vacuum seal it so you can recall that for later. And you mentioned neurons and it sounds like like energy of some sort. And I understand we're, you know, we're energy-based beings, right? Like that's, that's also core to how we are. You mentioned, I think in a previous conversation because we have lots, but this analogy with the neurons firing this excitement. I, I think you used the carnival example. Can you can you recall that? Yeah, so um, neurons operate by what we call the all or none principle, which means they either fire or they don't. So because I tend to see things in, in pictures, I think of it like the game at the carnival where you take the hammer and you hit the metal thing and whether or not it goes all the way up and hits the bell and rings. It's sort of how neurons work. Like unless it reaches that threshold of excitation, then it won't fire and it won't move on or connect that that neural play. Mm-hmm. And so this is how we actually can change how we think because we can look at focusing on something else because we we can say where attention goes energy flows so the more i keep my attention on one thing that's what is going to be reinforced and so i'm choosing sort of the channel in my brain that i want to focus on and if i don't have that same electrical current or running that same play i'm refocusing my attention then that electrical em- energy isn't there and that sort of embedded network or learned network in your brain dies off or has less power, so to speak. Imagine thinking about the way you drive to work. 
I can't really use that with you because I don't work. drive. <laughs> right? I do drive. I just don't have to work. <laughs> <laughs> but so you drive the same route to work and it becomes so habituated. I'm sure this has never happened to anyone. But you get home and you're like, holy cow, how did I get here? Right. Like, I don't remember that entire drive. And so it's been so habituated, like that neural network is so strong that you're like, this is just what we do. And sort of on autopilot, you just do it. Mm, that happened today, actually. We were driving somewhere. Uh, and it was last night for dinner. And uh, and I'm getting ready to make a left. And Heather's like, no, you're going to go straight here. That happens often, by the way. But <laughs> the, the point was, was when I'm at this particular stoplight, I tend to make a left because I'm going into Tomball and not onto the highway to go to the woodlands or whatever. So right. my brain is like, when you're here, you should be making a left. And so I habitually was like, Left turn so you're not going to make a left, even though I know where we're trying to go. Right. Because your brain's just, it, it's just been well practiced. And so if your attention isn't on where you were switching gears to go, oh yeah, today we're going this way, mm -hmm. then you're just going to do what's been automated. So in that same thing, I'm going to take this a step further and, and tie it back over to that feeling and going, so what can happen is we get conditioned around certain emotions and be it reinforced or sort of punished and say, oh, I was criticized, I was bullied whenever I cried or it made me feel bad when I wore this outfit or when I did math and I struggled in school, you name it. And so now I've wired a network as based on that emotion that says this is how it feels to do math. This is how it feels to struggle in this way. And so then I've now associated a negative emotion with a particular experience, behavior, subject, setting, et cetera, which just gets automated. It's like, this is now what I learned to expect in my world, which isn't always true, right? That's right. It might have been true when you were in third grade. It might have been true when you were in junior high or high school, or it could have been true, you know, in your early 20s, but it doesn't mean that it is always only ever true. So are, are you saying that uh, you, your feelings as they evolve over time, you should always be confirming, is this still true, essentially? Well, I would offer up that I say feelings aren't facts, but they are feedback, and so if I don't put my lid on, if I don't actually look at things through a process of self-reflection or repetition, i.e. looking at other data, then I'm apt to just allow my emotions to lead without considering that there might be more to the story, or maybe that isn't actually true. The interesting thing actually with emotions is that they're actually really important when it comes to connecting with other people. And sort of that route would look like empathy, right? Right. And when I talk about empathy, I want to distinguish empathy from sympathy because I, I'm, I'm a word girl. I, language matters. Well, help, help break that down then. What is, what's the difference? So I would say sympathy is sort of like, you know, oh, too bad. Sucks to be you. Right. Bummer. Yeah. <laughs> right. But empathy is so much more of like, wow, I can only imagine if I were you had your background and was going through that experience, like how bad that had hurt mm -hmm. or like, oh, I would be so inflamed. So empathy is much more my ability to see somebody's 
perspective from their perspective, not my perspective of someone's perspective. Because that comes across, like I would say sympathy to some degree has more of a, a component of judgment. Whereas empathy is more like, hey, I'm with you, dude. Yeah. Like I'm stuck in this elevator too, trying not to like panic. All right, yeah. <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. The, the way the way we break that down is pretty interesting. Well, and so because we're fundamentally hardwired to connect, then it means that we're all going to fare a lot better when we have other people that we can walk alongside with. And so you know, think about who the kinds of individuals that you relate well with. Usually you share probably similar hobbies, interests, likes, dislikes. I think that uh, you've said before you're you're people, you know, and I don't know what you really mean by that, but I think it's probably like the people you identify with, the people that uh, maybe even are easy to empathize with. And as you mentioned, likes, dislikes, things like that, like you need your people, right? And without your people, you mentioned also the prison system and the 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 idea of isolation and how that changes somebody could also kind of drive them crazy because that feedback loop is missing and they don't have their people and I wouldn't even say in that scenario uh, in prison your um, your people probably are harder to find even <laughs> well know, just because of the scenario sure sure I mean that one's got a whole other layer to it but even that gets at that sort of gang mentality right and sort of we have to like I don't really you think have to anybody band together to survive right. yeah correct because that's I mean that's how we started was farm or tribal yeah right and and they've actually done social psychologists have looked at this in terms of the research and they go how is it that tribes can value their people so much but then sit there and commit atrocities like brutalities mm-hmm. against other tribes and it's because ironically we all have an in group and we have an out group and if you're in my out group I can assign a different merit or value which I think is a little unsettling honestly, because I would contend that I don't care who you are or what you do. Like you have value because you're human. Right. I mean, this is why we don't start testing like, hmm, I wonder what would happen this dr- with this drug if I tested it on humans. Right. Right. <laughs> That's sort of the last case after we test in all these other ways, because humans fundamentally hold a different value. Mm. And so why is it that we can't begin to see everyone with a certain amount of credibility that says, you don't have to be like me, you don't have to think like me, but just a sense, a fundamental sense of respect to say you are human and therefore you're in, like we're good. Mm -hmm. But that being said, we're going to gravitate to finding people who we can sort of get or we feel like you know, have more of a shared understanding. One example I think of is, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, both my husband and I, you know, from different states in the Midwest. And we always sort of joke about the the difference in the way that people are, where it's like it can be, have been years without seeing friends, et cetera, from back then, because he moved away um, when he was an adult. And I haven't been back in years, but there's just a way in which you interface with these kind of people. Meaning that uh, that you have a past and so it's easy to reconnect or? No, that there's just, you know, a shared sort of understanding. I mean, we can even look throughout the country and go, right, it's different being in the South. Like mm-hmm. I've lived a lot of places throughout my life and, you know, f- 
for, I, I did my graduate training in Southern California. And so I've been on the West, I've been on the East Coast, I've been in the South and now the Northwest. Mm-hmm. And there's just a different vibe. I mean, somebody sort of joking about um, sort of the Pacific Northwest people and how, you know, we're as a general rule, not mean, but we just sort of answer questions and then go back to what you were doing. Right. Whereas if you're in the South, like so you ask somebody for directions uh, and they're like, they start telling their story and like, what are you here for? And then they like invite you over to their house for tea and then they introduce you to their family. I mean, it's just a whole different right. world. But some of that comes from just a shared sort of way of life. But some of it can come from, you know, just interests. I mean... Another example for me is having grown up more in athletics and that I've just always been, you know, and, and having coached competitive gymnastics for a number of years, like I love being around people who are fit and love to take on a challenge and be like, yeah, let's try a Tough Mudder or a marathon or whatever. Whereas other people might be like, no way. Like I got up and walked to the fridge. Like, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> That's my workout. <laughs> right. Right. Dude, I walked around the block. I parked far out at the grocery store. Yeah, second row, man. (laughs) But that it makes a difference in terms of, you know, this shared understanding to go think about the people that you want to spend your time with, that these are people where you don't have to catch them up and be like, oh, yeah, okay, here's my entire history, or this is who I am, this is a context from, from which I'm coming, and so now I can say... X, Y, or Z. Right. I'm almost thinking like there's certain words you've used. So we said design to connect. Uh, I've heard you use the word attachment before, which has not just its surface level meaning, but a different meaning in neuroscience. Uh, But then I'm also thinking like relating, you know, so what you're describing here is being able to relate with people. So because I'm from the South or because I'm from, you know, the Pacific Northwest or whatever, there's certain things I relate to. Yeah, th- I think of shared understanding. Right. What other words describe connecting, though, that you can think of that, that we can kind of identify? Well, I talked about empathy mm-hmm. and going, there's a sense of feeling understood, right? Like, I don't have to give a whole explanation that, you know, I sort of share something and you, you have a sense of how that might make me feel and and to care about that. Mm. Connection is really about finding ways in which there's support too. Mm. To say, I I know you're going through a hard time and I'm here for you. I mean, where I live, there's it's a huge military population. And so we have a lot of families where, you know, husbands generally speaking, but some wives too are out to sea and raising kids in that zero to five age when spouses are gone for three, six, 12 months at a time. And they, they're, they're home. Mm. <laughs> like they're doing their life trying to raise kids. And it's very isolating because they need to go by the kid's nap schedule or they don't. And then they suffer in other ways. Right. Right. But trying to figure, yeah, like they're trying to figure out who can I do life beside. And, you know, if somebody needs to watch my kids or I have a doctor's appointment, like a lot of them don't have family nearby. Right. Because this is a duty station. It's not where they live full time. The other thing that's really important when it comes to connection is touch. There's some research which really shows how 
just the fundamental of embracing another. I forget if it's 20 seconds or what, but having a longer embrace, like a hug, the way in which it helps sort of buffer stress, it reduces arousal and reactivity because there's touch. You can hear the sort of testaments of widows, women who've lost their, or husbands who've lost, you know, their significant other, and just how much they miss being touched because they used to have the embrace all the time. We can also see this in parenting. I mean, you hold babies, they're close to you, that that touch. And some years ago, there used to be orphanages. Mm. And the challenge was is that these babies, these infants weren't tended to, and when they didn't have touch, they didn't survive. Because touch is that crucial. Touch is that crucial. It's a, It's probably a feeling thing too, but there's a chemical process that happens there too. I know that's that's a thing with newborns. There's the the concept of of skin to skin or the idea of the mother holding the child, you know, within seconds, you know, and what a big impact that makes on the child for the rest of their life, that initial right. attachment. Yeah, because they come out, I mean, think about it. They were confined to this itty bitty space, totally tethered to mom. Right. And now, oh my word, there's just all this space and I'm not confined. And where's my human? Yeah. Right. Because skin feels different than other things. And so, not to mention hearing the heartbeat, right? Because right. think about how infants mm-hmm. actually hear the mother's heartbeat for nine months. And then it goes away mm-hmm. for that moment of, you know, the birth process. They're out, they get cleaned up, whatever, the suction, and they let them cry. And there's a certain processes that happen that the doctors and the nurses feel good about. And then they're like, okay, mom, healthy baby, here you go. Congratulations. That 30 seconds feels probably like a lifetime to the, to the baby. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking with moms, but it can be dads too. Yeah. Like, of just the the value of touch. And, and I would say, like, just the proximity like I think about when people aren't well and you find out a loved one's in the hospital, where do you want to be? Right there next to them. Exactly. Because there's comfort in touch. And when we can't touch people, hold people, and really have a connection with people, we're lonely. Right. A companion even. Right. And so I think about this with so many you know, workforces being far more distributed. Yeah. And while it's an awesome advantage and helpful in the workplace, it also has other potentially deleterious effects of going, like, where's my people? I'm not touching anybody. I lose the visual data, which I I think we've alluded to this in the past or, or mentioned this briefly about empathy and the role of facial expression, right? If I don't, like, there's this part of the brain and we have mirror neurons that help us empathize with other people, right? And some of that, a huge component of empathy is actually facial expression. So when I see people, when I look at a face, that contributes to me having a certain feeling experience as well. Right. Like uh, maybe sitting down for a meeting, a one-on-one meeting, uh, great conversation, but the person keeps looking down at their watch or they keep looking at their phone well, you kind of, you know they're still listening to you because you know how sound travels, right? But it seems visually based on their face and their 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 demeanor that maybe they got other things that are, you know, 
uh, competing for their attention or that you're just not a priority. And so you start to feel like, come on, man, what's going on here? Or, you know, right. Be committed to this time with me. Right. And it's not that they've said anything. It's that they're doing something. Correct. So you're paying attention to these visual cues that then you make inferences or judgments that then create feelings that then contribute to choices, which then might bring you closer to or farther from that individual in relationship. Wow. Right? What I'm hearing all along the way is, is the struggle. Like this connecting and feeling is, is, a, is a big struggle. Wow. <laughs> it is. You know, ironically, so my husband always says, you know, 47 or 7, it doesn't matter. Like, you, you still are trying to figure out how to live beside other people who make choices you might not make and to stay in connection, like mm-hmm. as families and, and, and going, you know, we pick the people. We, we can, well, we can't necessarily pick our, our relatives. We, we can pick our family, like pick the people that you want to hold close because, you know, even going, so say so in that example, like somebody has their cell phone out and, you know, keeps sort of looking or tapping their fingers, et cetera. Well, what if you gave them an opportunity by saying, hey, by the way, like, what's up? Are you waiting for a call? And you inquired, mm. i.e. used your words and then said, hey, you know, that just bothers me. Like, I don't have a lot of time. I took time out of my day so that we could have lunch or dinner, yada, yada. And I'd really love for you to be present with me here. And then if they can accommodate that, like it's going, oh, they took the feedback I gave them. And the next time they either clarified and said, hey, you know what? I really want to, I just have to keep my phone out because I'm waiting for this call. But as soon as that comes, I'll put it away. That would contribute to you feeling very different in the relationship with them. Because one, they use their words, right? But you did too. And you said, hey, it really bothers me when you do that, or I'm uncomfortable or hurt or fill in the feeling word. And now I just created more of the fabric of the relationship. I never really considered that, honestly. To I mean, it's happened to me recently. And I never really considered the confrontation, which that's what it seems like it is. And there's a way you can approach it with love and respect or not, this confrontation, right? And describing to this person, giving them a chance essentially to share with you how they feel, which goes back to the first principle of, of being human or the fundamental least, you know, being able to feel. You give them a chance to share how they're feeling about whatever it is that might be competing for their attention. And, and it says, hey, they might get a chance, like you said, to say, I'm actually listening to you, but I've got this thing going on, so i got to pay attention. And they might give them a chance to give an excuse that then you can have empathy for and understanding and continue on with. And then that negative feeling is now removed. It's squashed. Right. What they did is when, when you shared your perspective and invited them to share theirs, you now built a context for where they were coming from. And you're like, oh, so now I have more space and now we can actually communicate with our words. And, and it's, it actually brought us closer. Wow. Right. And, and so even you using the word confrontation, because ironically, I wouldn't call that a confrontation. <laughs> I would. I know. See? I, <laughs> but I, we always talk about in our family, like clarifying, like I'm just clarifying, like, is this what I, this is what I heard you say? Right. Or is this what, or this is what I heard you say to me? Is right. that what you meant? Is that true? Right. Yeah. Or like when you, you can, one of my favorite things is just doing the observational feedback of like, hey, I noticed 
whenever we sit down, you tend to leave your phone out on the table. And I'm just not sure how to make sense of that. And give them a chance to explain it. Yeah. It's like the roundabout invite. (laughs) Some would call that. So I said confrontational uh, or confrontation. And some would say that what you described was passive aggressive. Touche. Right. But however, this is part of, you know, being an adult and being human and that we have to use our own words and if you feel like someone is being passive aggressive, you can say, hey, that, that didn't really feel so hot to me. Right. I don't, I don't prefer for you to come in the back door <laughs> in that way. Like, just tell me you don't like it. Right. But everybody's different. But at least you had the actual interaction with the person around that particular situation, as opposed to leaving the setting, being ticked off or irritated that like dude has phone there the whole freaking time. Right. And... So you had an opportunity to actually shift your feeling in the actual context of the relationship real time. Mm. What I'm hearing is that there's no opt out. As you mentioned, you can't opt out a feeling. Right. Right. You can opt out how you may want to feel about something, but or change that. But it sounds like you can't opt out of struggling like you're you're stuck with struggle. Yep. And so the best thing to figure out is, is how to cope, how to cope with this struggle. Right. And and really, that's so paramount. You know, in in my field, we talk about sort of two lanes of coping with different struggle. And we talk about developing sort of emotional coping strategies. So like, can I journal? Can I meditate, exercise, things like that, that actually contribute to me feeling differently. But then there's also this lane of problem solving coping, which is sort of like we just talked about with relationship of going, what could I do or say to modify this interaction? Because I don't like it. (laughs) It doesn't feel good. I don't want a repeat of this. So what can I do in order to create change? You mentioned before naming things being so crucial. Mm -hmm. Is just naming something, how does that really help somebody to, to be able to identify, I guess, what the real problem is? Like, why is that so crucial? Because if I'm minimizing things or I'm using some way of distorting what's actually happening, it doesn't help me navigate it any better. Like, I could look at Mount Rainier and be like, it ain't that big. Like, it's just a little mountain. Mm-hmm. I know it's a volcano. It's, I can totally hike that. But how would that actually help me make it to the top of Rainier or, or even withstand any length of time to hike that trail? There's no way that minimizing that would help me do it any better. Mm. And so to acknowledge that there's training, and and that's really, it was struggle. I mean, so many things in life are about skill acquisition. So if I'm not very good at something, to go, do I want to get better? Because I'm not going to get better at anything I don't practice. Yeah, wow. It takes uh, learn by doing in most cases, iteration, patience, right? I mean... There's so many people who are so hard on themselves, especially programmers, because you're often in uncharted territories, like on the hourly, on the daily, you know? Yeah. And so having patience for yourself in your own learning process and understanding that you are going to struggle because we're human, but then Mm -hmm. figuring out how to get around those or just giving yourself some slack by saying, you know what? I'm only human. Right. And and bear in mind that especially if you're then frustrated because of the emotions that you're having, like, oh, 
I, here I keep trying to work out this thing and like no matter what, I can't get past it. I can't figure out this code, how, what's not working. That actually the, the emotions that you have, especially the negative ones, are going to run interference with your ability to actually both problem solve and cope because it's like you're just living like a dog. You're just in that mammal brain trying to contend with the emotions as opposed to the actual problem. When we're looking at these ways that we struggle, you know, it really is just true that nobody gets to opt out of humanity. And and I would say that's really a good thing because we can really enjoy our lives and have some really amazing experiences, relations, relationships, emotions, and and figure out how to get better. You know, I'm fascinated by people. I mean, that's really what got me into this field is like, I'm, I'm sort of like a perpetual two-year-old. Like, I always want to know, but why? Like, why do they do this? Right. And why does it work this way? And why did they do that? And it was interesting. I was having a conversation with uh, a friend recently, and they were talking about they were just shocked or appalled that somebody did X, Y, or Z. And I responded to them, and I said, really? I said, you're really that surprised? And they're like, yeah. And I, I was like, because I'm not surprised at all. Because that's just what people do. Like, people mess up. Right. People do things to hurt other people. People do amazing, generous things. Like, human beings are so fascinating. But you have to be willing to be curious as opposed to trying to push back and be defensive around because you might not like a choice somebody made or how they affected you, or a feeling that you had. So you have to practice switching the lens to go, where can I see myself, my struggles, in someone else, and give them to be permission to be human, just like you. All right, thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of Brain Science. Please join us on this journey. We have so much more to explore. If you haven't yet, subscribe to this show at changelog.com slash brain science. Also follow us on Twitter. We're at Brain Science FM. You can also join us in Slack to talk about all things brain science at the changelog.com slash community. It's free to join. If you have specific topics or suggestions you want us to cover on this show, email us, editors at changelog.com. Huge thanks to our partners, Fastly, Rollbar, and Linode. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And last but not least, if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again soon.